0: Our scripture reading this morning as we continue our sermon series on encounters with Jesus is from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. I'll be reading from verse 5 through 13. Um, I I have a weird request. I forgot a bulletin, and I'm definitely going to need one during communion. Do any of you have a bulletin you're willing to share with me? I apologize. This is the only way to do this. Thank you. I was also worried that I would get the order of worship right and come up here at the wrong time, but I see that I did not, so I'm very pleased with that. Let me also briefly remind you that, uh, remember last week I made a plea, if there are people who feel like maybe they could help out with our audio and video for the live stream, we could still use a few more volunteers, so if your heart was pricked last week but you didn't volunteer, uh, let me ask you to, to consider maybe doing that. We still need some volunteers. But now let's read uh, Matthew 8, starting at verse 5. These are encounters with Jesus, and um, this comes immediately after Jesus' encounter with the leper, right? There's an interesting contrast. We will hear about Jesus' encounter with the centurion today. Immediately before that, he encountered a stinky leper with sores all over his body, and now a centurion. And there's a very interesting contrast. And these are really the first two specific people that we hear about Jesus encountering in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read about the encounter with the centurion. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. So let's start at the end of this passage, the second to last verse. Jesus makes reference to something interesting. He makes reference to the great banquet, a great banquet, the feast of the kingdom, this feast that takes place, and somehow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be there along with the great matriarchs and patriarchs of faith. What is this banquet? What is this feast that Jesus refers to right at the end of our passage? Well, in the popular imagination of the people of those days, they had a picture of a feast that was coming, and it was the great messianic banquet at the end of time. And in the popular imagination of those days, what the people saw coming was, when the Messiah finally came, and conquered all of God's enemies and all of Israel's enemies, there would be a great feast. And they would gather with the Messiah in Jerusalem and they would celebrate. And if you read the religious writings of the day, things that priests were writing and scribes were writing, there were lots of people who made reference to this great messianic banquet. And if if you read what they wrote, you get a very clear picture of how they saw that banquet going and important for our passage, who would be there and who would not? So according to the scholar Kenneth Bailey, who in the popular imagination would be eligible, who would be at that great messianic banquet, the wise, the intelligent, and the perfect, the religious leaders, the Levites, and the leaders of the Jewish nation who'd fought alongside the Messiah, who would not be there? the unworthy, the unclean, and of course, Gentiles. People like this centurion, in the imagination of the people back then, would definitely not be part of this banquet. Why not? Well, one, he was a Gentile. He was either probably from Syrian or Roman descent. And in those days, you didn't even eat a normal dinner with a Gentile, let alone the great kingdom banquet with the Messiah, okay? And two, not only was he a Gentile, he was a centurion of an occupying army. Centurion was a high up, relatively high up, in the Roman army, as the name suggests, commander of a hundred soldiers under him. In a town like Capernaum, there probably weren't very many centurions. He might have been the only one. He was almost certainly one of the most powerful soldiers In that whole town and what were his orders to make sure that every Jew bowed the knee to Caesar and his will he was the commandant of an occupying army how do you think that made the locals feel about him do you think they liked him do you think they felt affection heavens no serious Jews would have despised this man Not only would they not want him at the banquet of the kingdom, this is precisely the sort of person that when the Messiah came, in their imagination, they thought the Messiah would defeat and destroy people like this. Guys like this who were oppressors of Israel would be the first ones put to the sword. When they heard the the prophecies of someone like Zechariah, Zechariah made this prophecy. The Lord says, on that day, I will destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem when they heard that prophecy it was directed at people like the centurion and all his soldiers but now here comes Jesus and not only does he seem to accept this man he puts him at the banquet he puts him next to Abram and Isaac and the centurion all of them together at the heavenly banquet raising the glass of wine talking like they're friends or maybe even brothers how's that how does someone like this centurion suddenly end up at the banquet of the kingdom? Well, I'll get to that in a moment. That's the central question of the sermon. But I want to say something as a little bit of a side first. It struck me that as I read the Gospel of Matthew and the way that it flows, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing, of course, when he put the acceptance of the centurion at the heavenly banquet right next to the curing of this leper. Those two people, right at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a really interesting pair. And it shows that Jesus and the Holy Spirit is, is breaking down something old and something intractable in human nature. If you think about it, those two people, in a certain way, represent the opposite sides of the political spectrum. Here's what I mean by that. Throughout history, and this isn't recent history, throughout history, there have been two great streams of, of political thought, and each of them are sort of represented by these two people in a certain way. So there's, there's always been people who have politics who say that they're on the side of the poor and the downcast and the oppressed. That is who has the first fruits of their attention. And if that's who you are, the people you're suspicious of tend to be the powerful, right? And the rich, people like the centurion. That's one stream of politics you've seen throughout history. There's another stream that says, no, 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 we should have our eyes on the creative class, people who accomplish things, great men and women who produce things in this world. That's who should get the fruits fruits of our political attention. And people on that end tend to be a little more suspicious of the dependent and the dysfunctional, maybe people like this leper. Jesus pays no attention, no attention whatsoever to these old devices. And the first two people he makes contact with brought into the table together the seating chart at the kingdom banquet that jesus suggests here is abram isaac centurion leper jacob things don't divide neatly in his kingdom between elite and downtrodden oppressor and oppressed proletariat and bourgeoisie there is something wonderful happening here that cannot be contained in those old, tired categories. The kingdom is stronger and bigger and different than those things that have divided us across the centuries. So the kingdom brings in these, these two men, brings this centurion to the table of the banquet. Why, how is it that he got there? Let's go back to that central question. How did he get to the table? How come this guy gets in? Is is it because of a, a universalist message? Is the message here that everybody's in, Jesus' grace is so big that everybody comes in? No. Because again, specifically in this passage, there are people excluded. Jesus mentions there's people who end up on the outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are those people, says Jesus? They are, look at your text, the subjects of the kingdom. Some of the subjects of the kingdom end up on the outside. So who are these subjects of the kingdom? They're the ones who look like the good and faithful souls. They're some of the people who look like the good, pious Jews. They're some of the regular, faithful church members. The words that Jesus speaks here, hard to hear, hard to hear, resonate with things that he just finished saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter seven, verse 21. Jesus says, "Not everyone who says, "Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven." In fact, there's going to be people who do miracles, who preach great sermons, who show up in church every Sunday, who will find themselves on the wrong side of the judgment line. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, and that sort of echoed here. If that picture of, of the centurion and the leper and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob all together feels warm and welcoming, these words put a little chill in us, right? What's going on here? Why is the centurion in where some of the pious Jews are out? I think in this story, Jesus gives actually a pretty clear answer to that. It has to do with faith. It is faith that Jesus celebrates in this passage. It's the faith that Jesus sees in the centurion that makes him to say, wow, this guy, he could be at the table. People who come from the east and the west and the north and the south, people like this at the table. It's faith of the centurion. Jesus is starting to anticipate Paul. When Paul talks about righteousness in Romans, right, well, how does he say, how, do, how are we justified? By grace through faith. What do we mean that it is our faith that justifies and brings us to the table? What are we talking about when we say Faith. When we use that word, we mean a lot of different things. We have, you have in your pews, and I have up here this book. And you can't read it, but maybe you know the title of this is Our Faith. So sometimes when we talk about faith, we mean things like this book. And this book, if you, if you know, is full of the teachings of this church. Heidelberg Catechism is in here. of Dort is in here, which you all know very well now. And the Apostles' Creed and the Contemporary Testimony. When we teach our children in church school and in catechism, we try to teach them the doctrines of our church. And when we teach them, we say, we're we're teaching you our faith. Is that what Jesus is impressed with? Is that what moves Jesus when he says, boy, I haven't even seen faith like this in anyone else in Israel? Is it the doctrinal knowledge of the centurion? Clearly not. Now, doctrine is really important. We should teach it to our children. I'm glad we did our Can of Dort study here together in the sermons. We should grow in our doctrinal knowledge. Terrifically important, but it's pretty clearly not what Jesus is talking about. Probably this centurion has almost no theological doctrine knowledge yet at all. Jesus celebrates a different part of faith. A more central part of faith. A more essential part of faith. And that's trust. Jesus celebrates the surrender of this centurion and the way he puts himself completely under the authority of Jesus and if you look at this this text he really does surrender he surrenders his will he surrenders his power and he surrenders his dignity to Jesus in this story he surrenders his will Notice when he approaches Jesus, he doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. He doesn't say, Jesus, please heal my servant. What does he say? He just tells Jesus what's going on. My servant is paralyzed and is suffering terribly. I don't even dare ask you to do anything, Jesus. All I do is lift this up to you. Jesus, here it is. This is what's going on in my life. I trust you to do what's right. Your will be done. He surrenders his will. He also surrenders his power. Remember, I said he was almost certainly one of the most powerful men in Capernaum, and his own words testify to that. He says, and I say, go, guy goes. If I say, come, he comes. If I say to my servant, do this, he does it. His whole day, he spends ordering people around, and people do what he says. But here, he completely puts himself under Jesus' authority. I'm not even, you're not even, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house, Jesus. Man is used to holding up his hand and giving commands, holds it out and says, whatever you say, Jesus. That is not easy for a powerful person to do. If you do committee work, and I know that many of you have been on committees, um, church volunteer committees. If you've ever been on a committee that has a couple people who are used to being in charge, like maybe they run a business or maybe they're very successful as a manager in some situation, and they get on that committee, how do they behave on that committee? I promise you, they are not passive, okay? And this is good, right? We need people who are active and do things on committees. I'm not complaining about that, but the point is that when you're used to giving orders and and living out of, of, of a management situation, you keep on managing, that's how it is. It's hard for smart people to admit they're wrong, it's hard for rich people to let others pick up the check, and it's hard for powerful people to take orders. This man completely submits himself. Remember he says, I say to someone, go when he goes. Did you notice the very first word Jesus speaks to him after he submits? Go, and he does it. He surrenders his power, he surrenders his will. He also surrenders his dignity. Were there people watching when he surrenders himself to Jesus? Yes. The text makes it clear. Jesus turns around and talks with them. How many people were there? The text doesn't say, but we know from the context that it was crowds, right? Crowds are following Jesus everywhere. So there were lots of people watching as he completely submits himself to Jesus. What do you think the optics of that were for the centurion? How do you think that looked on him? To put himself under the authority of this poor Jewish rabbi. Do you think the Jewish people of the town snickered to see the man who held them under his authority suddenly become submissive? Do you think the soldiers that were under him gnashed their teeth and were angry and went back to the barracks and said, how humiliating for a man of Rome to submit to that man? I think so. And then there's this. The man gives up his will. The man gives up his power. The man gives up his dignity. And who is he doing it for? Is he doing it for himself? For his own healing? His kid? A beloved family member? His servant. That's remarkable. And it kind of makes me wonder, and obviously I don't know this, that if part of the reason Jesus responds so strongly to this man is that it echoes what Jesus himself is doing right at this moment. Coming to this earth, emptying himself of everything, submitting to the will of his Father, for whom? For us, his servants. The knowledge part of faith is critical and important. May we all grow in knowledge. But the center of our faith is surrender and trust. It's the most important part of whatever we do. Everybody does it. Every human being, whether they're Christian or not, whether they think themselves as religious or not, you surrender yourself to something. And what you surrender yourself to is the thing that you worship. I mean, maybe you don't surrender yourself to anything. Maybe you keep it all inside. Well, then you're worshiping yourself. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's success. Whatever you surrender yourself to Whatever you put your ultimate trust in, that's what you worship in this world. And at least in this story, the centurion surrenders himself to Jesus. I've done and seen a lot of professions of faith over the years, and you've seen them too. We bring kids up here, and we make them stand up in front of everyone, and we make them say, we ask a few questions and say, yes, in front of everybody, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus. And sometimes young people, when they're going through that process, they come to me or they come to Bob or someone else, and they say, why do I have to do that? I hate being in front of people. I mean, I went to all the classes. I said to the elders, I want to follow Jesus. I know the things. I love Jesus. Why do you make me stand up? Can't I just, like, say that, like, like tick off a box on a, or write something down? Well, that's the surrender part. We make you come up here and do that. Because that's the surrender part of faith, the most important part of faith. It's nowhere near as humiliating or as, as difficult as what the centurion had to do, but it's just a little bit of that. I've seen other churches when you make profession of faith where you actually have to go down on your knees to do it. Why do we? To show the surrender, to show that you're surrendering your life to Jesus, the most important part. And is it scary? Yeah, it is. But it's so important because when you are a disciple and you follow Jesus, you make this surrender every single day. That surrender move is something you do day after day after day. Someday you'll be in a storm, a crisis situation in your family, and everyone else is panicking and going for self-interest. But you surrender. You stand up, you absorb the anger, and you try to return some love. Or maybe you'll find yourself as a young adult in the big city, just starting your career, you're making new friends at the job. But their culture, their way of living is totally different than yours. A lot of your friends are just totally into hookup culture, right? The sex is casual and it's no big deal. It's no big deal, they say. We're adults here. You surrender to Jesus. You wait patiently, try to find someone you actually love, and you make sure that your level of sexual commitment matches your personal commitment, like Jesus told you to do. Even though your friends laugh at you and say, what does it matter with you? Are you you training for the priesthood, brother? Or maybe you find yourself in a situation where you've received a hurt, a wound. Someone has hurt you badly, and you want to go up and pop them in the nose, and that's what you want to do. Or you just sit there and you think about ways, you have revenge fantasies, think about ways you could get back at them. But you don't do those things. You surrender to Jesus. You forgive. You still confront the person, but you do it in love, without any need for revenge, without anger. This surrender thing, this is what it feels like to follow Jesus. Every day. Every single day, including this one. Because again this morning, of course, Jesus is among us. And again, he's calling us to follow him. And today he set a table for you. So come to this table in faith, the deep faith. Lift up your hearts. Surrender your spirit. And let him be Lord of your life. Amen. Our God, we thank you that your great love has been poured out into this world and that we're going to taste it at this table. Thank you, Lord, that that when we surrender to you, we find a love and a purpose and a hope that nothing on this earth can destroy. Feed our hearts, Lord, through your word and through this food and make us strong to be your disciples. Amen. Amen.